God, just so grateful for this morning. I'm grateful for all of the people who have gathered here today and have joined us online. And uh, God, our uh, prayer this morning as we open up your word is that your spirit would illuminate to our hearts and our minds what your word says and that we would never be the same. That you would do something in us to grow us, to change us, sanctify us. Lord, maybe even save us this morning as we look to your word. Lord, your uh, word this morning, the, the, the stories that we are gonna read, um, Lord, they just help us to understand your heart and your character. And so God, I pray that we would understand that this morning. I pray you be with me as I speak from your word. It'd just be exactly what you want all of us to, to hear. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, several year, appreciate that, Jason. That was a good amen, man. Just encouraged me on the spot right there. Um, so I, I'll never forget a few years ago, uh, I was going to get my hair cut. So I sat down in the barber chair and, um, you know, she's getting going, uh, cutting my hair and we're, we start chatting and talking and, uh, eventually got to the, the, the question that I get all the time. It's a very common question. Hey, what do you do for a living? And uh, I said, well, I'm a pastor. And normally things get weird at that moment whenever I say that. Uh, some people think it's great and they want to talk more about it. Some people get real quiet and weird and they don't really want to talk the rest of the time. So I said, hey, I'm a pastor. And she goes, excuse me? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. She's like, okay, I've got questions. I was like, great, bring it on. What questions do you have? And she goes, okay. So she starts telling me her life story and she starts telling me all about just some recent things that have been going on in her life. You know, school had been really tough. She just broke up with her boyfriend, a couple other things. So she was just in a really hard season of her life. And she said, I have a friend who texts me. She says, my friend's like a super Christian. And uh, she texted me a Bible verse. Um, and it was from Luke chapter 18. I believe it was verse 27. She texts me this Bible verse that says... What is impossible with man is possible with God. We're going to read that at some point this morning in Luke 18. So that her friend texts her this verse. And so she asked me, she goes, hey, so what does that mean? Like, like, cause I guess her friend didn't elaborate. And so she's like, what does that mean? I'm, you're a pastor. You tell me, what does this mean? Does this mean, here was her question. Does this mean that if I... I don't know, pray hard enough, uh, figure out how to do something that God will answer my prayers exactly how I want him to. That whatever I'm finding impossible right now in the moment, he will make possible for me. Is that what this verse means? You know, this is one of those verses in scripture that is really easy to take out of context, right? It really preaches well in every single context you could think of because it's such an encouraging verse. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so it's easy to grab that verse and kind of apply it to any situation. And here's what we do. We run that verse through our merit-based bias when it comes to life. I feel like most of humanity, including my barber at the time, kind of 
thinks of life as a, if you are good enough, if you do the right things, then you will be blessed. Or I think maybe most of society views God in a kind of merit-based system or a genie-based system. If you do the right things, pray hard enough, clean your life up, clean up your mouth, clean up whatever it is, do the right things, then God will in return bless you with answering your prayers or giving you the things that you want, right? He will make possible what has been impossible for you. And this was the exact lens that my Barber was looking at this verse through. And so I asked her, I said, hey, have you ever read the story that that verse is in? She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, that that verse is from Luke. And so that's a story. It's a really long story about Jesus. And that particular verse is included in part of that story. Have Have you just read that story? And she's like, no, I don't read the Bible. And so I said, okay, well, let's, let's talk about the story. And so I proceeded to tell her the story and got to share the gospel with her in that moment out of Luke chapter 18 because this text that we're gonna read this morning in Luke 18 is one of those texts that, that I think just absolutely blows up all of our expectations of how God should interact with us. I think it's one of those texts in scripture that blows up all of our assumptions about God. We have these assumptions, they're deep inside of us that say whether we believe in Jesus or we don't believe in Jesus, whether we've been walking with Jesus for a long time or not, these assumptions that say, God, if I do everything correctly, you will in turn bless me. And this passage obliterates it. And it was awesome because I got to share that with my barber, and I want to share it with you this morning. Luke 18, starting in verse 18. We're gonna go all the way through verse 43 uh, through the end of the chapter today, but let's just start. Let's go Luke 18, verse uh, 18 through 26 for right now. So let me read this. We'll explain the story, and we'll dig into it. So here's Jesus it starts out, it says, and a ruler asked him, that is Jesus. Let me, let me stop for a second. So in the, the, the other gospels, Matthew and Mark record this story as well, but it's only in the gospel of Luke that this person is referred to as a ruler. Every single time that the gospel of Luke uses that word ruler in reference to someone, it is referring to a ruler of the Pharisees, a religious leader. But we also know that this man is wealthy, because we'll get to that later in our story. And we also know that this man is young because of what other gospel writers say about this particular encounter. So here's this guy. We have a wealthy ruler of some sort. We don't know if that's a religious ruler or some sort of societal ruler. But what we know is he's young, he's wealthy, and he is influential. Okay, that's what we know about this guy. He's influential within Judaism of the day. All right, so, and a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to look at what this ruler asks Jesus and log that away. 
How does he refer to Jesus? What is his attitude towards Jesus? What is his exact question towards Jesus? It's going to be really important as we get later in our text. So just log that away. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, scholars have wrestled through the years, through the centuries. Did Jesus just say that he's not good? Right? That he's sinful? And most scholars agree, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing, he's actually responding to the attitude that this ruler has towards him. This ruler does not see Jesus as the Messiah. He does not see Jesus as the Son of God. He sees him as simply a teacher. So it's like Jesus saying, well, if you just see me as a teacher, why are you calling me good? That's going to be important as we get later in our text. Verse 20, Jesus is answering the question. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not... Bear false witness, honor your father and mother. It's an interesting uh, answer to the question by Jesus, if you've been following him in Luke. Do all these right things. Verse 21, and he said, the ruler said, all these I have kept from my youth. I've been a good Jewish boy. I have kept everything. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's an interesting illustration that Jesus uses. Um, a lot of people debate, what, is, what did Jesus mean here? And, and most think, well, he's just being hyperbolic. He, he is saying it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a, of a little needle that you would thread a piece of thread through than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's basically saying it's really, 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 really hard. Not impossible, but really hard. And we'll, we'll find out why in just a moment. Those who heard it, verse 26 said, then who can be saved? So you have Jesus with these crowds around them and they see this interaction. They see what Jesus says. They see what Jesus says about those with money and they go, wait then who can be saved? Why did they ask this question? What elicited this question inside of them? Well, you have to understand again, just the way that people assumed God interacts with humans, right? In the same way, they have this kind of merit-based system. And, And so the thing that we know about this particular society is that they believed that if you had wealth, you were blessed by God that you had God's favor. The Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, typically were wealthy people. They had a lot of money. And so people assumed if you had money, that meant that God had favor on you. He blessed you. 
So you have a guy who's a ruler, so he's influential in society. He's influential within Judaism. So people already view him. This is a pious person. This is a person who does keep the commandments. This is a person who does know the Torah and the scriptures. And he's wealthy. So obviously he's doing something right because God has blessed him. And so the question comes out, wait, if that guy can't get into the kingdom, then who can get into the kingdom, Jesus? That's, that's where the question's coming from. Right? I mean, who do you compare yourself to? Right? People maybe in the church or other people, maybe people you see on YouTube or podcasts and you, you see these people and you're like, man, that person, that's like the super Christian over there. That's the person that follows Jesus. That's the person that has the eloquent prayers. That's the person that seems to have the perfect marriage. That's the person that, and you compare yourself all the time because we think, man, the people who have it all together, the people who seem to act perfectly are the people whom God is really pleased with. Who do you compare yourself to? And so these people, they look at this guy. This guy was one of them, and they're like, wait, if he can't be saved, if he can't get into the kingdom of God, then who can get into the kingdom of God? We get to verse 27. The famous verse. The verse that my barber asked me about. Jesus' response to that question was this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. For that guy that you think has it all together, clearly blessed by God, for that guy to get into the kingdom of God, God's gonna have to make it happen. He can't make it happen. For anyone to get into the kingdom of God, God's gonna have to do something to make it possible because with man, it is impossible. Right, that verse, verse 27, it's not about individual prayer requests, although anything is possible with God. That verse isn't about God blessing people who have it all together, doing the things that they want him to do. This verse is about God doing the impossible, namely saving sinful people, conquering death, and giving eternal life. That's what the verse is about. So it was in that moment that I got to share the gospel with my barber. Because it's not about those who pray hard enough. It's not about those who live holy enough or are religious enough. But it's, it's about those who are willing to say, God, I need your help because for me to do what needs to be done to get in the kingdom, it is impossible for me. Impossible for me to do it all. And so God, I need you to make it possible. I need you. And so this is something that in this, in this story, in this moment that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. He wanted his disciples to see this encounter between him and the ruler. Because Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, it's not all of the rules and regulations and religious decorum that you need. It is me. It's Jesus. It's, 
It's God himself to do something that you can't do. That is what you need. You can't earn favor with God simply through how you live. Someone who is very religious in how they live does not mean they have the favor of God. Jesus was trying to teach them. Someone who is very wealthy does not mean they have the favor of God. That's not a calculus that God is using. So I love this in our, in our text in verse 28. Peter, I love Peter, man. I just, I identify with Peter so much. And so Peter's the guy who goes, hold on, Jesus, we dropped everything to follow you. Right, us 12, we did exactly what you told the ruler to do and he walked away, but we didn't walk away. Look at verse 28. Peter says, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. So Peter's still in box checking mode. Right? He's still in like, okay, all right, hold on, I'm trying to, oh, wait, it's not all of these boxes, but it's this box over here. Check, we did that, right, Jesus? I think Peter wanted some affirmation. Hey, are we on the right track to getting into the kingdom? And Jesus encourages Peter here. Look at verses 29 uh, through um, 30. It says, and he said to them, his disciples, Uh, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And so Jesus is encouraging Peter here saying, yes, Peter, that was good. Like, I see that you trust me. I see that you see me as the Messiah and not just simply a good teacher. Yes, we're, we're on our way. And yes, those who leave everything to behind to follow me will receive blessing. And so Jesus is affirming that in Peter, but he's still trying to teach them that the way to the kingdom is not through checking the boxes, it's through needing me, namely Jesus. Keep going in your text and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 31. And so in that moment, well, here's what Jesus does. He takes his 12 aside and he says, let me explain this to you, right? Verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem. Remember, they're on their journey to Jerusalem for Jesus' final week uh, there in Jerusalem where he would go to the cross. We're going to Jerusalem. Listen, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So Jesus is saying, listen, y'all should know this. Y'all read your Bibles, right? Right, so everything that's about to happen in order for you to get salvation, in order for you to get the favor of God, all of that is, is written out in the prophets That's about to happen in Jerusalem. So he explains it, right? Verse 32. For he, that's Jesus, the son of man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, the Romans, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him on the cross. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus lays it out for him. I'm going to Jerusalem. Your prophets already told you this was gonna happen to be shamed, mocked, flogged, and executed. And then I'll rise again. And y'all should know why I'm going to do this because your prophets told you why I was gonna do this. And look what it says in verse 34. But they understood none of these things. 
The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. The disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying. What do you mean you're gonna go to Jerusalem and die? What do you mean you're gonna go to Jerusalem and be flogged and mocked in all of those things? So here's what's fascinating. Jesus said, your prophet said this was gonna happen. I want you to look at Isaiah 53, four to six. This is just one of them. Just one of the prophecies about what Jesus would do, what the Messiah would do when he arrived. Look at this. It says, surely he, the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is Isaiah. This is uh, like over a thousand years earlier. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is saying, listen, your prophets declared to you that in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be in the kingdom, in order for you to have favor with God, that the Messiah was going to have to come and he was going to have to suffer in your place. He was going to have to be crushed to pay off your iniquities. He was going to have to do what you could not do. Isaiah made that clear to you. And guys, hey, disciples, come here. That's what I'm about to go do in Jerusalem. I, I'm the son of God that's going to take upon myself your sin. I'm the son of God that's gonna take upon myself the punishment of your iniquity so that you can have peace with God, so that you can be healed. I'm gonna do what is impossible for you to do. In verse 34, it says that it just went right over their heads. They didn't understand. They will soon. They'll understand soon, but not in that moment because Jesus was trying to teach them, listen, the way to the kingdom, it's not through checking the boxes. The way to the kingdom is through needing me. You need me to get you in. You need me to be crushed for your sin. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the message of the entire Bible from cover to cover is that we need Jesus to do what is impossible for us to do, to be made right with God. Went over their heads. It's not about merit. It's not about religion. It's not about wealth. It's not about checking all the boxes. It's not about any of that. We need Jesus to do what is impossible for us to do. And the disciples just did not quite understand, just like the ruler. He didn't quite understand. So keep going in our text. We're gonna read another story, starting in verse 35. And I love this because right after this story with the ruler and Jesus, we get another story with Jesus interacting with someone else. And it's like a complete opposite. So let's compare, contrast 
stories. Jesus' encounter with the ruler and Jesus' encounter with the blind beggar, starting here in verse 35. Let's compare. So as he drew near to Jericho, he's on his way to Jerusalem, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now let's compare how the ruler greeted Jesus and how the blind beggar greeted Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, son of David, he's read his Bible. He's calling out to the Messiah. He's read the prophets. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, commanded him to be brought to him, told the people that just rebuked him, no, guide him to me, please. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that exactly what the ruler wanted Jesus to say to him? What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Seems so easy for the blind beggar to experience the kingdom. Why was it difficult for the ruler? And why does Jesus say it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And yet, when we read the text here about the blind beggar, it seems so simple to experience the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying that it's impossible for the wealthy. But he is saying it's hard. See, the blind beggar's circumstances put him into a situation where he, there was nothing else in his life that was distracting him from his true need. It had all been stripped away. He was on the side of the road, poor, blind, and begging. Nothing else was distracting him from his need. But when it comes to the wealthy ruler, there was a lot of things distracting him from his need. His wealth distracted him from his need. He had his physical needs met and beyond, probably lived in luxury. It wasn't a common thing for him to feel needy. He was a ruler. He had authority over other people. He could tell people what to do. It wasn't common for him to feel needy. 
He was a very devout religious person who did everything right and everyone probably affirmed him in doing everything right. It wasn't common for him to feel needy. It's reflected in how he greeted Jesus versus how the blind beggar greeted Jesus. It's not saying it's impossible for the rich to get into the kingdom. He's saying it's going to just be a lot harder for them to get to the point where they go, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. Because that's all that's required to be saved. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. You know, we saw it last week. Evan preached out of earlier in Luke 18, this comparison of the Pharisee in the temple and the tax collector in the temple. And the the Pharisee is praying to God and he's saying things like, God, I'm just so glad that I'm awesome. I'm just so glad that I know, you know, I know you, I do everything right. Thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, that tax collector bum over there. Man, thank you so much, I'm not him. And the tax collector beating his chest and won't even look to heaven and says, God, I've sinned, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, when I compared it to, that's the man going to the kingdom because he knows he needs Jesus. He doesn't have other things distracting him from his need. See, the blind beggar was in this nothing else matters state of mind. I was trying to figure out how do I communicate this? And what, what best came to me was having a nothing else matters state of mind. He was on the side of the road. He knew his need. He knew the son of God was coming and nothing else matters in that moment. It doesn't even matter the people who are rebuking him for being weird and socially awkward. He's crying out to Jesus, have mercy on me because nothing else matters. But for the rich ruler, there's a lot of things that matter to him more than Jesus, which is why he walked away. There's a point in your walk with Jesus where you will reach a nothing else matters moment. You will reach a moment where you realize there's nothing else in my life that matters more than the grace and the mercy of God because I realize my need for Jesus. You know, I... um. Long, long time ago when my wife and I were first married, we lived in Dallas for a little bit. And it was a, it was a tough season for us where our marriage wasn't going great. And I remember we went to a marriage conference at our church in uh, Dallas. Both were following Jesus. I had already been working at a church for several years. I was in seminary. Went to this marriage conference. And something happened to both of us. Uh, the only way that I can describe it for both of us is that it was like God laid out before both of us our sin. And he just showed us, like, I just want to show you how your pride, like, flavors all of your motives. And I just want to show you how poorly you've been treating your wife. And I just want to show you just how your self-righteousness and your kind of smug attitude like the Pharisee was towards the tax collector, your smug attitude towards lost people. I just want to show you that. And it was like he revealed it. And there was this moment where it was like, oh my gosh, nothing else matters, Jesus, in your grace. Because 
as I look at what you just showed me, there is nothing I can do about that. That would be impossible for me. I can't change my heart. Like Jesus, I need you to do what is impossible for me to do. Nothing else matters right now than your grace and your mercy. And it was that moment that for me of just growth in my walk for Christ may have been conversion. Where all of a sudden, I realized my need for Jesus. And when that happens, things begin to get reprioritized in your life. Like your money. Going back to our text, where you realize your money, which was so precious earlier, and it's something you so badly wanted to accumulate, you realize, well, that that doesn't matter as much anymore. And so, man, this is now a tool to worship Jesus versus just a tool for my enjoyment. And so, God, what do you want me to do with it? Do you want me to give it all away and give to the poor? Do you want me to invest this in good things? Can I give generously to my church? What is it, God? Because I just see this now as a tool for worship rather than something I rely upon. Or things like religion get reprioritized. You realize, wow, actually, no, religion or my church family and the faith that I follow and the, um, the, the faith that I practice are now tools to worship God. Like, so yeah, I gather with my church and we sing and we read God's word and we encourage each other and we do these things. We take communion because I want to worship Jesus because of what he's done for me. It now becomes a tool of worship rather than something that I rely upon to save me. A nothing else matters moment when you realize your need for Jesus and you cry out, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. That's my only prayer. Have you had the Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me moment with him? It's possible that that moment that I'm referring to in your faith is, is, is actually conversion. It's actually the moment where you, you go, Jesus, I actually trust you to save me and not me. And you could be just like me where you followed Jesus for a long time, went to church for a long time. Gosh, we're in ministry and in seminary and yet not have come to a place yet in your faith where you said, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. I need your grace. Because that is how one inherits eternal life. That is how one gets into the kingdom. That's how one is saved. Admitting that there is nothing that you can do that Jesus must do what is impossible for us to do. And so what I want to do, I just want to close our our time right now and I, I want us to just take a few moments. Actually, I want to take like four or five minutes, which is long for a church service of no talking. Um, I just want us to reflect and sit in on that and ask the question, have I had a nothing else matters moment? Have I had a Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me moment with Jesus? Do I actually trust Jesus to save me or do I trust all the boxes that I need to check? Reflect and ask God about that. 
There are some of you here today who maybe you have never trusted Jesus truly. Maybe because you're just now exploring who Jesus is. Maybe you've known about Jesus for a long time, but you've never fully trusted him. And I want to ask you, will you receive Christ this morning? Will you call upon him for mercy this morning? And if you will, we want to pray with you. Actually, to the point where I asked my elders to go to the back of the room and stand up. And if you want to go pray with them to receive Jesus, please go. They want to minister to you. And if you're in a spot like, man, I don't want to do I don't want anyone to get up and see me going back. Nothing else matters. You need Jesus. And we want to celebrate with you. Or maybe this is just a moment that you can go and pray with someone and encourage them. Or you need to go to someone else, a brother, sister in the room, and ask ask them to pray over you, whatever it is. Just want us to reflect on this moment. Have we had that moment with Jesus? So I'm going to step off the stage for a few moments. And uh, let's do that for a little bit. And then I'll come back and we'll pray.
before you in worship. Because God, we, we thought you were a God that only blessed the strong. And we thought you were a God that only showed your favor to those who feared it all out. And we thought you were the God that if we messed up, you forgot about us, cast us out. We thought you were the God who would mark people as outcasts and never come before me again unclean. But we are wrong. You are the God that draws near. You are the God that comes and saves. You are the God that gets down in the mud with us, willing to put on human flesh and be mocked and flogged and spat upon and shamed in our place, even nailed to a cross so that we could be righteous before you. God, none of us can garner your favor. It would be impossible for us to, but you make possible what is impossible. Jesus, we confess as a church before you, we need you. There's nothing else that we need. We need you, Jesus. Have mercy on us. We praise you and we thank you that you have done that for us. You have shown us your mercy. We're so grateful that we could gather together today to celebrate that, to be reminded of that, to be challenged with it. And God, I pray that everyone would leave here today knowing they need you and you alone. And that is it. We love you, God. We ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.